0: One of the things uh, Kathy found enjoyable as we were searching through items that my mom in particular had saved from my childhood would be the number of memorabilia associated with me. And in particular, my mom had saved probably every report card I had ever received And with that, you know, tracked my academic course. Now, to me, at that time, I was really an exceptional student. But for some reason, my teachers never agreed. And what Kathy kept reading in the report cards from grade school was the comment, does not work up to his potential. And I think, what do they know what my potential might be? Then when I get into college, I have to confess in my undergraduate work, not then would I have said it, but I'll say it now, I was probably not the best student but I could never understand why I didn't receive the grade I thought I deserved. I mean, after all, I was a 4.0 student in my mind, but the teachers didn't always agree. So for the students that are with us today, you understand it's not so much what you think of how well you're doing in your subjects, but it's what the teacher determines how well you're doing. Or in the same way, if we look at professional careers, you know, we may think we're doing a great job in our responsibilities at work. And then all of a sudden, the boss calls us into the office and says, you know, we're going to have to let you go. you know, we're putting you on probation. You're just not quite accomplishing what we expected. Now, if we have the privilege of running our own show, our own business, so many of them have professional requirements. And it isn't that you and I would be able to say, well, I think I'm capable to be a dentist, an attorney, a physician a therapist, a teacher, whatever it may be, what happens? We have professional exams. And we have to meet the basic criteria in those professional exams. Now, why am I saying all of this? In some ways, it's not any different in the church. And when we talk about In the church, because we've been examining the New Testament church, it really isn't so much how well we think we're doing or what preference we might have as to what the church ought to be like. It really has to do with the evaluation and the standard that's established by the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about the study that we've been doing together, I came to realize in many ways we could really spend year after year talking about the biblical revelation or disclosure on the church. Because obviously that's a main theme in the New Testament, isn't it? But we've seen some of the most fundamental things that we need to understand. And the first and foremost is the fact that when we talk about the church, the reason for its existence and its purpose is the glory of God. And we have also seen that when we start talking about what is it that God has called us to Himself to do, the answer is to worship Him, to give Him the honor and the glory that He deserves. And we have seen that when we do so, it can't just be a ritual we go through. It can't just be an outward action. It has to be something that comes from the depth of our being. And we have also seen that when we start talking about worshiping the God, uh, our God, it is something that is not only to be genuine on our part as the people of God, but it is something that is to be a joyful expression of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving by God's people. We have also seen that when we start talking about worship, we are not just talking about a period of time given on a designated day, but I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you do what? You present your bodies, you present yourself as a living sacrifice unto God which is your rational, your reasonable service of worship. The right expression. In other words, worship is a continual expression on the part of the people of God. We have also seen that when we talk about the church as God has established it, that God's people recognize there are elements that are critical for the healthiness of a local body, the church. They continued how? Steadfast, devoted to what important ingredients in church life, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And we can sit and say, well, how are we doing? And again, just like Paul could say of himself, you know, It's a little thing to me that I should be examined or evaluated by you. Now, that immediately tells me that Paul has had a great transformation in his life. Because what is it that tends to affect us and bother us, impact us the most? What do people think about me? What do people have to say about how I'm doing? Paul said, that's insignificant to me, how well you think I'm doing how well you think I'm fulfilling my apostolic role. And he even went on to say, as concerning myself, I don't know of anything that is displeasing to the Lord. I have a clear conscience in my service. And yet he said, that doesn't exonerate me because the one who evaluates me is the Lord. And it isn't so much how we think we're doing because we tend to either get discouraged and think, well, I'm really not doing so well, or on the other side, we get an inflated look and I can't understand why these teachers don't appreciate my real abilities in the class and the subject I'm studying. So my thought was, let's take the final couple of sessions as we look at the New Testament church and see what the head of the church has to say to us so that we find out what really pleases him. Now, we know all of the New Testament is really the record of Jesus Christ speaking through human authors, but there's something uniquely distinctive about the book of Revelation. Not that people would say, well, you know, it's hard for me to understand this book because of its symbolic forms and figures that are found within it. But this book was written by the Apostle John at the direct commission of Jesus Christ. And in this book, Jesus Christ, if you look in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11 said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the churches that are in Asia Minor. So this book was written by the Apostle John, directed by the Savior himself who was commissioned to write this work. Now we know that when John wrote this work, he was being persecuted and exiled because of his witness for Jesus Christ. You'll notice he said in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was where the Romans exiled many of their public enemies. Those who would be opposed to the Roman Empire. Those who were considered individuals that were detrimental to the well-being of the empire. And here is John writing in about uh, 96 AD, during the time that the church was being persecuted by the emperor Domitian, that... He was commissioned by Jesus Christ to write this work. Now, what do we know about this? Well, if you look at the opening statement found in verse 1 of chapter 1, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the revelation, and you know the meaning of the word revelation, the disclosure some Bibles may have that this book, instead of being called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, is called the Apocalypse. Um, excuse me, <clears throat> is called the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, and it has to do with the fact that this Greek word is brought into English as the word revelation, and its basic meaning is something disclosed. It's something that otherwise had been hidden, and Jesus Christ is making it known. And when it says it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, while it will also be a book that will focus on him, it is primarily the information that he wants to be given to the church Now we know that when we look at the book of Revelation, it talks so much about future events and what would be considered the great tribulation um, and all of the things that will unfold in those climactic events. But please notice to whom this book was designed to be written. To the churches. To the churches. And you and I should spend time to look at this book and to see what Jesus Christ himself has to say to the churches. As we look at this disclosure, this revelation, we are seeing it has to do with the unfolding of God's plan and his purpose as he commissioned John to pen it. We also recognize that in this book, Jesus gave to John, in a sense, the outline of the material that is to be included within it. And it's found in verse 19 of chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. Notice there Jesus says, John, again, imperative, write. What is he to write? Write the things you have seen. And in a very real sense, that's chapter 1. He has seen this display, this disclosure of the glory of Christ. Then he says, write the things which are, and that is what is presently in existence. And that is Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches to which John was to send this letter. And then notice the third portion of the book. And the things which shall be after these things. After what things? After the things which are. And interestingly enough, when you go to chapter 4, verse 1, John writes down, And after these things I saw. So what's the division in the book? Chapter 1, what John had already seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, that is the churches. And chapters 4 through 22, what is yet coming? What is yet coming? Now with that in mind, let's look at some of the things that we find here. You'll notice that Jesus Christ is the focus of this revelation and the picture that is given to us in these opening verses of Revelation chapter 1. It says, verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Interestingly enough, this is the only time in the New Testament where the three members of the Godhead Right As a Christian, I am a monotheist. I believe in one true God. But my God exists in three distinct persons or personalities. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in many of your theological studies, you will find there's an order to these three persons of the Godhead. The first person is God the Father. The second person is God the Son. And the third person is God the Spirit. But what do we find here? He first speaks of God the Father. Then he speaks of God the Spirit. And finally he speaks of God the Son, Jesus Christ. The order is changed. As far as I know, the only place in the New Testament where that order is changed. Father, Spirit, Son, rather than Father, Son, Spirit. And the reason would be because of the Spirit being sent by both the Father and the Son. Now why am I bringing this up? Because there's a way in which the Greek language is designed to indicate what is really being emphasized. And when we come to the book of Revelation. While all members of the Godhead are involved in what is being disclosed, they move, uh, John moves the information about Jesus Christ and gives more information about him than any other member of the Godhead because the emphasis in the book of Revelation is on the second person of the Trinity, on God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we find portrayed in here is the vision of the one who is the head of the church. And what is it that's being emphasized about him? Well, the first thing that we can see in this emphasis that's made about Jesus Christ is that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth the one who loves us and cleansed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God. What's he emphasizing? First and foremost, the fact that he is the one that has revealed God to us. So what do we need to remember about Jesus Christ? If you want to know what God's like, where do you look? You look at Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness The second thing for us to recognize about Jesus Christ is that he is the supreme ruler over all the authorities of the earth, the kings of the earth. And as the supreme ruler, he is also the only one who can bring us to God, the faithful high priest. He has cleansed us by his work. So what is being disclosed about him? He is that supreme sovereign who is the Savior that brings us to God. And then John turns and sees a glimpse of the majesty of this being. And that is included for us in verses 12 through 17, or 18, excuse me. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw the seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands one like a son of man. An Old Testament term that indicates he is the descendant of Adam who is to fulfill and restore what Adam lost fulfilling the covenant promise where God said, I am going to send a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and be bruised while he does so. Or in the book of Daniel, the one like the son of man coming to the ancient of days to receive the promised kingdom. In addition, he is clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. In other words, he's not one who is going to be involved in doing manual service, but he is clothed in the garments that show both his royalty and also his priesthood. Why should that be true? Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the king priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the supreme sovereign and his Head and hair were white like wool, looking at the vision of God as the ancient of days who precedes time. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet are burnished bronze. they glow in the furnace, his voice is like that of the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came that sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining at his strength. So today we talk about meeting Jesus Christ and what do we usually think of? Oh, we come up to him. Hey, brother, how you doing? This chummy, chummy idea of Jesus Christ. John, the beloved apostle, sees Christ In his splendor, and what does he say? I fell down at his feet like a dead man. He was overwhelmed with the majestic glory that radiated from Jesus Christ. And while we have to always remember, he is a friend like no other friend. He is a faithful companion who will never let us down He has shared in our humanness so he can identify with us. But he is the eternal God. He is the author of our being and we should never treat him tritely. And what is emphasized in this picture of him? He is the God who sees through all things the eyes of flaming fire. He is the one who speaks that sharp two-edged sword and his word is fulfilled. He is the one that has been designated to execute judgment on the earth. His legs burning like in a furnace of brass or bronze, speaking of the judgment of God that is coming. Isn't that what Jesus said about himself, that I have a judgment to execute on the earth and how I wish it had taken place? Isn't that true of what we find he said in the book of John, where John recorded for us that all judgment has been committed where? To the Son, that all may honor him. And this supreme sovereign, who is the creator of all, to whom we owe our existence and being, is also the coming judge. And therefore, we listen to what he has to say. You will also notice, as it says in verse 11, as is repeated um, at the end of chapter 1, verse 20, of the seven lampstands, that Christ is the one who has selected these churches. Write to the church at Ephesus. Write to the church that not only is in Ephesus, but Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What is he saying? Well, Jesus Christ has made the selection or the choice of these churches. And we need to remember there were many other churches in Asia Minor at that time. You and I know of at least one other. Did you ever hear of the church at Colossae? Book of Colossians, just down the road from uh, Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. In the same way, the speculation is there were possibly more than 100 churches in Asia Minor at the time in which John wrote. But Jesus Christ is selecting seven. And you will also find in the book of Revelation, John often utilizes the number seven because it's the number that speaks of completion, fullness. Just like you and I would say, well, Last week's over. Today, we're beginning a new week. How many days till we start another week? Seven, thank you. A full week, a complete week is seven days. Guess who put that in place? God did. God did. And what's the last day of the week? Saturday, Sabado. First day of the week, Sunday. And so, on the first day of the week, commemorating the resurrection, the early church worshipped. And they would, seven days going by, start a new week again. The point I'm trying to make is from a biblical standpoint, seven is the number of completion. He selected seven churches out of all the existing churches at that time. Because he wants to show us something complete. And what you find repeated throughout chapters 2 and 3, notice in verse 7, Revelation 2. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches. But he's been talking to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus. But it isn't just for them, it's to the churches. Look over in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says where? To the churches. If you look over in verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches. I won't go any further. He does that seven times. Because what is represented by Ephesus? What is represented by Pergamum? What is represented by... Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, isn't just for them, but for the churches. And so, with what Christ is writing through John here, is for Colossae, is for the church in Thessalonica, is for the church in Galatea, for the church. In Corinth, etc. Are you with me? It is written for the churches. Now, people have recognized this symbolic use of it and they've tried to say, well, how is it we're to understand this selection of seven and what Jesus is doing with them? And the ways in which people have usually identified the seven is to say, well, It was something just for that historical period. These seven churches really existed. This is how they were, but it had a message for other churches historically at that time. Another way in which individuals have looked at this section is to say, well, since it's a complete picture of the things that are, it's looking at the age of the church, which goes from the time of Pentecost until the rapture. And there is a progression that the church in its apostolic era was like the church at Ephesus. And the church in the post-apostolic period was like the church that is in Smyrna, etc. Down through the final manifestation of the church, which was the church of Laodicea. The only problem with that is you have to be very selective in what geographical area you look at to say this is what the church is like in a given period of time. I think it is more appropriate for us to recognize Jesus Christ used these seven churches to give a complete assessment of the church in the time in which John wrote And all these seven churches become representative of every period of time of the things that are. So these seven churches become a picture of what the church was like during the time of the post-apostolic period. These seven churches become a complete picture of what the church was like in the time of the Reformation. These seven churches become a picture of what the church is like in your and my day now. And these seven churches are representative of what the church will be like when Christ descends and the trumpet sounds, and the dead of Christ are raised first, and then we who remain and are alive are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In other words, all seven churches are a complete disclosure of what the church was like in the days of the apostles, and all seven churches continue to provide a complete picture of what the church is like in every period of the church's existence. Are you with me? Therefore, you and I need to listen to what Jesus has to say to the churches because Jesus is talking to us today. And when we look at these churches, what we find is is that each of the seven messages that Jesus gives, one to each church, it follows the same pattern. It begins with something about himself. Notice if you look just at the church at Ephesus. He says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the one who upholds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the golden lampstands says this, And you will find he uses something to identify himself differently for each of the seven churches, which is pertinent to their situation. The second thing is he has something about which he commends them. And when I look at all seven, not every one of the seven finds something commended by the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Because it's not how well the church thinks it's doing. It's what Christ has to say. And after that, you will find that he has something negative to say. But I have this against you. Isn't that amazing? The head of the church has something against individuals who are saying we're members of the body of Christ. So radically different than what we think of in our popular form of Christianity today. And I also find it interesting that not all of the seven churches have something negative or condemnatory stated about them by Christ. Then he gives them counsel. This is what you need to do. Here's how you need to correct it. And it always concludes with a word of encouragement or hope to the overcomer, to the Nike, to the one who is victorious, to the individual living by faith, there is a great hope for you in Jesus Christ. God's people are always given hope. So what we need to recognize is that while the universal church is made up of only those who are genuinely God's people, the local manifestations of the true church in any period of time have individuals who profess to be the followers of Christ but have no spiritual reality along with those that are genuinely his that are facing the same kind of circumstances that were true in these seven churches. I thought today I need to not go into some of the details. My purpose will not be that we're going to study all seven together but without that foundation and background i don't know that we have the basis for us to start to examine what is it that christ has to say not only about these seven churches but more importantly through them about you and through them about me because this is a disclosure of jesus christ and it was written for whom for the churches And we neglect a very important aspect of our walk with the Lord if we don't look carefully at what the head of the church, Jesus Christ, has to say, as is recorded for us in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What is it that we need to recognize? The certainty that we can have Notice verse 3, or excuse me, 2 of chapter 2. I know your deeds. Look over in verse 9 to the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation. Verse 13. I know where you dwell. Verse 18 excuse me, 19, I know your deeds. Verse one of chapter three, I know your deeds. To the church at Philadelphia, chapter eight, I know your deeds. Chapter three, verse 15, I know your deeds. Isn't that amazing? Christ knows our actions and when we look at that it is also the reality that he knows what's behind those actions. In the verses we're memorizing after we talk about the word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. How did David express it in Psalm 139? Before there is ever a word on my tongue, you know it all together. Now that can either be a comforting fact or it can be an unsettling fact. So often we deceive ourselves in thinking God's not aware of what's going on. And the thing that we can be certain about is God knows what's going on in our life He knows the things that we're doing and he also knows the thoughts of our heart and mind. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows our circumstance and he knows our condition. Now the encouragement to all of that is he's always there with us, isn't he? He walks in the midst of the lampstands And he's the one that has the authority to establish the lampstand. Or like you can say to the church at uh, Ephesus, if you don't repent, if you don't change what's going on, I'm going to remove your lampstand. He's the head of the church. And it's all under his control. When the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Therefore, we have, this as our ambition, that whether we live or we die, that we might be pleasing to him. And you know why? We all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for all that has been done in the flesh, whether it be good or evil. It's sobering. But it's also humbling and causes us to cling even more tenaciously to the Lord who has loved us, who has paid the ultimate sacrifice for us, and to know that we are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ the Lord. But the caution is there. Don't find any comfort in playing church he sees us in our condition the issues of our heart more clearly than we see them for ourselves and what's really most important is we need to say Lord you try me you search me you see if there's any harmful way within me you lead me in the everlasting way. As an individual that's been washed by the blood of Christ, I continue to live my life in a confident dependence upon him who is able to do for me beyond all I could ever ask or think. And if I am going to be like Jesus Christ, it's going to be because of the miraculous work of God transforming me into his image. So it's not how well we think we're doing. It's how well does God say we're doing. And this is something that not only is important for us for when we stand before him, but as we go through each day, recognizing that the one who loved us and gave himself for us will always provide what is best for us as he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your truth. And we do want you to examine us. We want you to show us if there's anything harmful or displeasing to you within us. We want you to continue that glorious work of making us more like Jesus Christ our Lord, that as a local church and as an individual, we might be an entity that doesn't have words of condemnation from you against us, the words of encouragement, words of hope as you work within us to bring glory to your great name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.